It's Thursday, March 1st, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor Jason Moser and from Motley Fool Pro Jeff Fisher. Gentlemen, happy first day of March. Happy first day of March, indeed. By the way, wherever you, I was just going to say, wherever you're listening, I don't know what the weather like is there, but here at Full Global Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia, it's it's is it 70 degrees it outside? Is. It is. We're surfing after yeah. the show. I mean, I was going to say, I'm a I Potomac. I've got to get out of here a little bit early. Yeah, exactly. Tea time this, is, this is the winter that never happened yeah. here at Full HQ. Uh, We're going to step back from the day's news and do a round of undervalued, overvalued, and overlooked. Um, and we're going to start with the undervalued stocks. Uh, and before we do, uh, I think some of our listeners may know about Motley Fool Caps, but for those who don't, uh, Motley Fool Caps is a free uh, service that we have uh, on our website, fool.com. And it's really just a way of, of keeping score on how you're doing with your different stock picks. You can just give a simple thumbs up or thumbs down on a stock, whether you think it's going to beat the market or lose to the market. Um, and it's just a really great way to track how you're doing and also to see how other people are doing. Um, for the undervalued stocks, um, we've got a couple of stocks that you guys have made calls on within Motley Full Caps. Yeah. Jason, I'll start with you. What's your undervalued stock? Yeah, it's the one that I uh, spoke of on last week's uh, Motley Full Money show, Carbo Ceramics, that uh, I'm really interested in it. I'm so so interested in it, as a matter of fact, that I added it to my Rising Star portfolio this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, just to refresh everyone's memory there, it is in the business of propens, which uh, helps these companies that do all the fracking operations around the shale uh, formations in the, in the continent. Uh, the propens are what is put into the fluid that helps keep the, the shale in releasing the gas and the oil. And so, Carbo Ceramics makes a ceramic propent, which has a very high conductivity. So, they're the only ones that make that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they have two big customers in Schlumberger and Halliburton. And to me, you know, this is a market leader with, a, with management really experienced in the field, uh, shareholder-friendly, in an, in an industry that really is kind of been thrown to the wolves here as low as natural gas prices have been. And so the stock got hammered uh, on its most recent earnings call because of a pullback in activity. You know, the companies like Exxon and Chesapeake, those big natural gas producers are pulling back on their production. And uh, it's ter- it certainly affected uh, Carbo's profitability short term. Uh, but for investors that have a little bit of a longer term uh, timeline, I think it represents a great opportunity for a company that is it plays a very important part in that value chain. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. Um, is this a company that um, faces a lot of competition? I mean, we've we've certainly talked about oil and gas companies before, and I, I, I think that um, the average investor who looks at the energy industry can can probably pretty easily suss out the competitive landscape when it comes to like the major oil companies. But when it comes to a company like Carbo Ceramics. What's the competitive uh, advantage that this company has? Well, it's interesting you say that because I mean, from the from one perspective, I mean, the, the competition they do have is more international competition, okay. and it's these companies. There's a, a company in uh, Brazil and a company in France that do more than just this. It's kind of one of the you know one of the segments of their businesses. But as far as the United States operations go, Carbo has you know a. a leg up on the competition in regard to just the size of the company, uh, also in the fact that they're the ones that produce these ceramic propens. And so, propens traditionally have been either sand or resin-coated sand, which all worked very well. But uh, Carbo has been focused on the ceramic product, which is a little bit lower margin, but it's it's much more uh, conductive, which means for these E&Ps, these ex- explorers, that they're going to be able to really mm-hmm. get the most out of those, uh, ex- of those wells. And so, that's where Carbo's competitive advantage lies. And last but not least, the ticker? The ticker is CRR. Okay, Jeff Fisher, uh, what's your undervalued stock that you've also made a caps call on? This is Riverbed Technology. The ticker is RVBD. 
This is a rule breaker selection, and it also is a position of mine in Motley Fool Options. Mm -hmm. This company was founded in 2002. They're on track to hit a billion in revenue next year. And uh, what they do, they sell networking hardware and software that lets companies build out their wide area networks. Um, when I hear networking hardware, I automatically think of Cisco systems. Mm -hmm. Is that is that sort of the the big competition that they face? Cisco is, but Cisco has kind of dropped the ball here, and that's allowed <laughs> Riverbed to really... Tell me about it. I'm a longtime shareholder. <laughs> you don't have to remind me. Grab a lot of market share. In fact, uh, Cisco is named frequently as a potential acquiring company that, that may acquire Riverbed because Riverbed is so focused on wide area networks or WANs. You'll recall, of course, with the internet, originally all the talk was about LANs or local area yep. networks. Now that's largely falling by the wayside in favor of wide area networks because companies are moving everything into the cloud, into remote servers. And what's most important is that your network works quickly and safely no matter where you are in the world. The LAN is just for the local area, of mm -hmm. course, your office. Uh, that's less important these days. Now it's about a wide area network. Let me ask you something that I asked Joe Mager the other day, um, and that is this notion of investments um, and their attractiveness um, based on whether or not they're going to be a takeout candidate. I mean, it, it sounds like that's at least part of it with riverbed technology. But I'm just curious, is that... Um, is that something you think about when you're thinking about investing in a stock? Like, you know, part of your thesis is, hey, there's a good chance or maybe even a great chance they're going to get bought? That's a, that's a great question, Chris. My answer is I look at the business on its own and make sure it's attractive, mm -hmm. barring any acquisition ever. Uh, but but if there's a chance it could be acquired, that's just uh, the cherry on top, and that's how I feel about Riverbed. So so flip that around. If if you're making a list of here's a reason to buy a stock, if the number one reason on that list is I think they're going to get bought out, is that a is that a just is that a bad move as an investor? I, w I would not base an investment thesis on that because it's very unpredictable and it's it's totally binary event driven, uh, and it's really contrary to I think what most all of us do here is just in looking for quality businesses that we can hold really for as long as we want. Mm -hmm. Let's move over to the overrated <laughs> stocks. Uh, Jason, what do you got? Overrated or overvalued, uh, both. I think really. I'm going with yeah. Duncan uh, Duncan Brands, mm -hmm. and I, you know, oh, I really do oh, like this. Dagger. How dare I, this you? I do How like this company. You? I like the product. I mean, I'm more of a Starbucks guy where coffee's concerned, <laughs> but I like donuts, and I'm not anti Duncan. But I, there are some things that concern me with the business itself. It's still a relatively new IPO. Um, I think that when you look at the stock price today, and that 82 PE that it holds is, is a little off whack because mm -hmm. of the the actual earnings that have been announced. Uh, but when you look at forward estimates, based on forward estimates for this year, you know the stock is trading at around 25 to 26 times forward estimates. For context, Starbucks trades even a, a little bit pricier at 29, but we're also looking at, I think, considerably different companies between Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts size-wise. I mean, Starbucks is you know, closer to $40 billion and, and, and uh, Dunkin' is closer to $4. Uh, but there are some things that concern me with Dunkin' Donuts in that the, the business model is very reliant on growing its footprint. They need to open a lot of stores to, to really continue becoming uh, more and more profitable. Their margins are still relatively thin compared to Starbucks. And really, for me, this all boils down to their balance sheet. Uh, you're looking at Dunkin' Donuts here. And Dunkin' Donuts has uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.2 billion in net debt. 
Now, for a company that needs to open more stores and expand that footprint, that's concerning. You look at something like Starbucks, where they have approximately $1.7 billion in net cash, you can see the advantages there in the balance sheet itself. So I like Dunkin', I like the company, I like the product, but I think the price is a little bit too rich for me today. What is, uh, for someone who is looking at this stock, um, what do you think is the next thing to look for? Um, is it the company paying down that debt? Or is it um, demonstrating that they can grow that footprint? Because certainly the opportunity <coughs> west of the Mississippi in the United States is enormous. You know, you, it is. Yeah, I believe at the time of the IPO, there was roughly um, you know one Dunkin' Donuts for every ten thousand people in New England, and west of the Mississippi, it's one Dunkin' Donuts for I think it's nearly two million people. So a huge opportunity. But what's What's going to get you more interested in the stock? I, th- I think you're right. There is a huge opportunity there, and I think Duncan can take a little bit of a lesson from Starbucks back in the day. You know, 1998, 99, 2000, when the, the Onion was putting out those articles on a new Starbucks inside a Starbucks bathroom. Yeah. That, that was just you know uncontrolled growth. It was out of hand. They were just you know indiscriminately just popping stores left and right. Uh, Duncan, I would be concerned if it if it appeared that their growth was not controlled, if they were opening stores just willy-nilly wherever to say that they're expanding that footprint, because then you would see, I think, that reflect in operating margins along with the fact that they're not able to pay down that debt. So I'd really want to just focus on slow, controlled growth. It makes sense if they can continue bringing in enough operating earnings to cover whatever interest payments that they have. Keep it kind of slow and steady wins the race here. They're, they're not trying to beat Starbucks, really. I think that's, that's not the battle. Got to love those munchkins, though. What's better than yeah, a Dunkin' Munchkin? I mean, those things are just fantastic. Yeah, they're pretty good. <laughs> uh, Jeff Fisher, what's your uh, overvalued play We're in talk- investing? The euro. We're talking relative to the dollar. I believe the euro is overpriced. Still? Still. Still. <laughs> and the- how much? How much worse <laughs> do things have to get? Well, it isn't. It's so the 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 euro since since it was in its history, it has traded between eighty six cents to the dollar. And a dollar sixty to the dollar, so a wide range. And the dollar sixty was hit in two thousand eight. The low was hit in two thousand two. Anyway, it's a dollar thirty three right now, so mm-hmm. it's closer to the high end of its range to the dollar than it is to the low end. Why do I think that's still too high? <laughs> uh, choose your reason. You know, it's well, only seventeen of the twenty seven EU countries use the euro, of course, and of those seventeen, really Germany is the only powerhouse economy among them. France is a a distant second. Mm -hmm. And still, the euro is the world's second largest reserve currency behind the dollar. But I think the whole eurozone construct is is just too flawed. Too many of these economies are too weak and not competitive, and they don't control their own balance sheet. So it gets very hard to argue now as the ECB inflates its balance sheet in the trillions of euros like, like the Fed did here in the U.S. a couple of years ago. It's hard to argue that the euro should trade at this uh, essentially 30% premium to Mm -hmm. the dollar. Um, And so uh, besides the euro itself, is there a particular investment that you find overvalued? There's in pro, we are short the currency shares euro trust, which is like an ETF. It's a trust that only holds actual euro. So there's no shenanigans going on there. And we've shorted that. People should know if they are shorting it that – there's been pretty high demand to short these shares. Uh, shouldn't be a problem, but just be aware that if there is a short squeeze, you could get squeezed out of the position. But but what we see here is a, a strong potential reward 
if the Eurozone breaks up or a country leaves, let alone if Germany leaves. What I read lately is Germany is the country who would most want to get out of this mess because it's, it's the strongest. <laughs> if they leave, and obviously this is off the charts speculation, but if they ever left the Eurozone, the, the, Euro, the Euro's done. Well, we see the North Euro and South Euro talk. That'd be... That'd be pretty interesting. So, to see. so the upside shorting the euro against the dollar is quite high if some disaster happens. Meanwhile, our risk is quite low. How much higher can it go against the dollar? You know, but keep in mind, currencies only move relative to one another. Mm-hmm. So we need the dollar to strengthen, which could happen when interest rates go up here, or the euro to continue to weaken, or or both. All right, let's move on to the uh, overlooked part of the discussion. And again, in this case, we're always looking for something that you think the financial media might be overlooking or that investors might be looking uh, overlooking and the opportunity therein. Jason? Yeah, I was reading an article today on Bank of America. They're talking about trying out maybe some new fees. Oh, yeah, some new monthly fees. <laughs> it seems like every month we're talking about this. Because it worked so well the last time right, they exactly. tried to roll that just, out. I can't see how this works <laughs> out very well for them. But it struck me that we see all of these headlines with Bank of America, Wells Fargo, uh, Citigroup, and all these banks. But the one thing that we never really see a lot of mention on is these are these smaller banks. And so for me... So I, I see this this big switch we have to make in regard to the way we view investing in banks now, because for a long time people invested in banks to rely on that dividend income and kind of help support them in that you know later in life stage. And a lot of people got really shafted here because these banks all don't pay dividends anymore, and who knows when they're going to be able to afford to do it. So instead of looking at banks as more of an income style investment, I think there are some interesting growth opportunities out there in the smaller banks. And so one of these tiny little banks I talked about a few times here, and I, and I have it in my Rising Star portfolio is Ameris Bank Corp. Just a $300 million bank tucked down in the heart of, of southwest Georgia. Uh, but they have been helping the FDIC through some acquisitions of failed institutions down there mm-hmm. to bring them into their uh, their little you know Ameris umbrella. And the whole basis of the, the investment to begin with was that this is a bank that I think is undervalued because it's in a position to really grow its assets under management. And, you know, just as an example there, I mean, we look back at uh, – at the end of 2010, they had total assets of $2.4 billion and deposits of 2.1. And since then, and they've been you know going through these little FDIC-sponsored acquisitions, which, by the way, limit their risk. I mean, it limits the downside right. there because the FDIC is pretty much guaranteeing this. Uh, their assets now uh, have grown from $2.4 billion to $3 billion, and deposits are from $2.1 billion to $2.6 billion. And this is for a little bank that no one knows about. And truthfully, I mean, the only reason I really know about it is because my mom and dad live in Moultrie, where this bank is headquartered. So I kind of got wind of, hey, that's an interesting little idea, and I looked further into it. But you don't see any anything in the news about these little banks, and I think they present some really unique opportunities. Uh, what is the ticker? The ticker is ABCB. All right. Jeff Fisher? ABCB? ABCB. Whoop, wait. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about the VIX, the volatility index, okay. which... Uh, maybe among fools, it's pretty well known, but in the wider media, uh, outside of geeks like us, it's not discussed that much yet. <laughs> but the VIX is only trading at about 17 as of today. It began the year around 24, so it's fallen quite a bit. Now, what is the VIX? It's a, a fear index, basically. It tells you how much investors are willing to pay for protective put options as opposed to how much they will pay for bullish call options. So when the VIX is low, that means people are not paying much for put options at all. They're more bullish than that. 
the VIX spikes as fear rises and, and people pay more for put options. So right now it's very low. It's the VIX is 17. Its long-term average is around 19 or 20. So it's actually below average. Whereas as recently as December, it was in the 30s, well above its average. So you can see as the market has climbed 10% this year, the S and P, the VIX has just gone straight down. And now when it's below its long-term average. And it's only the beginning of the year. Here, right. here's, here's something to, to realize. Almost every year, 12 of the last 15 years, the VIX has traded above 30, sometimes well above 30, at some point in that year, in every calendar year. So odds are high that the VIX at some point this year is going to spike into the 30s again. Whatever brings it about. A, a shock, a surprise, Europe again, some sort of fear. Uh, so So what? What about it? Well, one is realize that. Realize it's very likely the market's going to fall 3 or 4% in a day and the VIX will spike 20%. Realize that the market's going to fall at some point. Volatility is likely to spike again at some point. And then don't be shocked when it happens this year. Be ready with a buy list or uh, just wait it through, you know. The other thing you could do is buying put options right now while the VIX is below its average is cheaper than buying them when the VIX is rising or, or much higher. So if you have large positions you're concerned about and you want to insure them with a put purchase, doing so when the VIX is in the teens makes more sense than doing what everybody does, which is waiting for, for fear to spike and then paying up for insurance. As a general rule of thumb, what do you prefer as an investor? What kind of environment do you prefer? Do you prefer things when they're just a little bit crazy because it, it, it presents more opportunities for you? Or, or does eventually that just get to be too much of a headache? I'd say yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go just pulling right back to Buffett's <clears throat> letter to shareholders here. Uh, it's very important, I think, to realize this. And he makes this point a lot is if you're a net buyer of stocks, you know, going forward, if you're going to be a net buyer of stocks, you really have to be rooting for stock prices to come down because that's where the best deals are because you know you're going to be hanging on to them for a long period of time. And so, you know, and for me, I love seeing this volatility because you, you tend to see some really interesting opportunities. So, pop safe up. to say you're both rooting for the fear index to spike. That's Oddly true. enough, yes. <laughs> and the higher it is, the usually the better your buying opportunity. The That's lower, right. the lesser. So it's something to keep an eye on and realize when it's in the mid-teens, it's low. When it's in the upper 20s and above, it's it's well above its average. You're horror so movie? go VIX. Go higher. It's a dilemma. Are you it's a, a real horror dilemma. movie guy too or no? Uh, yeah, I am. The, the Exorcist. Oh, that's that's the worst. You're a horror movie guy? <laughs> yeah, every once in a while. Yeah, back in the day, like Nightmare on Elm Street, stuff like that. Exorcist was a pretty good one. I don't watch them anymore. You know, two girls in the house, they don't really yeah. like It's more Disney princesses. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's horror in That's, that's a horror movie of a different kind. I, I could recite Tangled <laughs> without even looking at the book. <laughs> All right. Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Check out Motley Fool Money this weekend. Our guest is Charles Duhigg from The New York Times. His new book is The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. Uh, that's Motley Fool Money on iTunes and on radio stations across America. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.